3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Wednesday breakfast listeners. Good morning, all out there. I hope you're going well this fine Wednesday morning. My name's Patrick Morrow, and you're with Claudia Craig. And we're your hosts today for November the 15th. Yeah, I know. Can you believe it? We're only getting closer and closer to Christmas, Claudia. I know. The ads are starting to go now. Like, what is going on? <laughs> I'm actually not thinking about it. But, um, <laughs> That's fair enough. I, I can compare with you I know the retailers are always oh, keen to uh, push, push the, uh, the Christmas message as early as possible. We've just uh, finished Halloween and, you know, <laughs> they've got to have the Christmas uh, decorations out telling us what, what to do early. Um, but here at 3CR, we are concerned with current affairs, of which there are always many and very uh, serious matters at the moment. So tell us what we've got on this morning. Yeah, so at the top of the show, um, I spoke to uh, Jennifer Lacey Nichols, a research fellow at the University of Melbourne, uh, discussing uh, the impacts of lobbying has on the federal and state government. And uh, she explains uh, that she's found that government lobbyist registers are largely left in the dark. So we find out who's actually lobbying the government, and she gives us a bit of an insight into that. Uh, Claudia will be speaking at 7.35 with uh, Bree uh, Morelli. Uh, Packaging Product Stewardship Lead at Boomerang Alliance about transparency and accountability in the supermarket industry and working towards a plastic-free future. Uh, At 7.52, we have a big interview. Claudia uh, spoke earlier with United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Situation in the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese, uh, who visited Australia this week amid continued conflict in the Gaza-Israel and tensions between communities here in Melbourne, Nam, about personal safety. So we've got a massive show coming up, so I highly recommend to uh, stay tuned here on 3CR 855 AM, also listen on your community radio app. Absolutely. And in headlines this morning, an Iranian artist living in exile in Turkey has revealed she was subject to extreme physical and psychological torture while imprisoned in Karaj's Karacha Chui prison. Elham Modaresi, a 32-year-old artist of Kurdish descent, was arrested in November last year for her involvement in the woman life freedom protests. She was charged with vandalism of facilities, anti-government propaganda, disrupting public order and inciting people to kill. Modaresi was temporarily released on bail from prison in January 2022, allowing her to escape to Turkey. 
She is reported as saying, I ask freedom seekers and those leading this movement for help and cooperation. Sheila Modaresi, Alam's sister, is asking people for help, claiming that Alam suffers from a genetic liver disorder and requires urgent medical care in Turkey. She is also asking human rights organisations to help Alam. And in Mexico, the first openly non-binary magistrate has been found dead, the Guardian reports. Jesus Osiel Biena was a celebrated activist in Latin America who worked to promote LGBTQ plus rights. An investigation is underway to determine the cause of death. Human rights groups argue Biena was active on social media and had received death threats. Baena had served as a magistrate for just over 12 months and had recently been officially granted approval to use the gender-neutral pronoun of maestro by the electoral court. Hardware retail giant Bunnings will remove engineer stone products from shelves. The retailer announced yesterday that they are going to stop selling engineered stone by the end of the year following calls for the ban by unions. Engineer stone has made many of the bench shops you see in Australian kitchens as an affordable option to granite or marble. However, when cut, the material releases a fine silica dusk, which can harm the lungs when, excuse me, when inhaled. A report released by WorkSafe Victoria in October concluded that engineered stone poses many health risks to workers, including silicosis, a lung condition that could lead to premature death, which is the most common risk due to the material's high silica content. The CMFEU also welcomes the move to ban the engineered stone and slad and would implement its own ban on members working with engineered stone if government fails to make a change. The union, the union has called on other retailers, including IKEA, to follow suit. In sport, 17-year-old wonderkid Nestroy Inkunda from Adelaide United has signed with German side FC Bayern Munich. The winger will join the club on the 1st of July 2024. Bayern Munich campus director Sawyer said, We have had Nestoroy on our radar for some time. He's an extremely fast winger. And to some entertainment news. Channel 10 has axed its morning show Studio 10 after a decade on air, citing poor ratings and budget cuts. The show will not return in 2024. And that's all your headlines for this morning. So, Claudia, do you think, do you think we could you know, get, a, get a gig on Studio 10 from that one? Right. Not if it's being asked. <laughs> I know, but you know, uh, like uh, we could pitch to them, 3CR Breakfast, <laughs> got the big names. I think we've got all the listeners here and that's why the ratings were so poor over there. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> anyway, well, we're now going to uh, listen to my interview I spoke to earlier with Jennifer Lacey Nichols. She's a research fellow at the University of Melbourne and she's going to discuss the power of lobbying in the federal and state government. Well, we are now joined by Jennifer Lacey Nichols, a research fellow at the University of Melbourne and a fellowship uh, member at Victoria Women's Health. She's asking the question, who's lobbying who at Canberra? Jennifer, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. That's okay, Jennifer. Now, Jennifer, you've uh, recently written an article in The Conversation discussing this question. And firstly, give the listeners an idea of what kind of goes on in the world of lobbying in Canberra. Oh, I mean, I guess the the short answer and maybe the point of the article is that I, I can't really tell you what's going on <laughs> in the lobbying in Canberra uh, because not very much of that information is made public. 
What? Why is that, Jennifer? Like, like I'm very, very much shocked that there's no uh, public uh, scrutiny on those lobbyists. Why? Why is that? I mean, we do have some public scrutiny. Um, we have lobbyist registers. Um, we've got one at the federal level, and then most of the states and territories have them as well. But those are, you know, I think of them kind of as a, I call them the phone book. So it's a digital phone book of lobbyists. It tells us the lobby firms, it tells us the names of the lobbyists, it tells us the clients, but it doesn't give us any information about who's actually been meeting with whom, whether they've scheduled meetings with ministers, with senior advisors, what was talked about in any of those. So I guess that's omission one. And then probably the much bigger one that's missing is that when we do have these registers, they only talk about, you know, our professional lobbyists the ones that work for, for lobby firms, they don't tell us about the lobbyists who are employed directly by a company. So if I work for Carlton United Brewing or if I work for um, one of the gambling organizations, they don't have to be part of the register. Yeah. You might have a situation where you have McDonald's having their own lobbyists walking into Canberra and saying, we want to have 50 fast food chains in um, a 30-kilometer radius of like you know 10 schools, for example, uh, Jennifer, is that a situation that could occur in those in those meetings? I mean, it, it certainly could occur. I don't necessarily think that they they would they would do that specifically. But um, I guess if we think of a, a slightly different example, Queensland is actually where we probably have the most detail, and even then, it, it's not very much. And so, there's there's early sort of examples where. You can see the alcohol organizations coming in and talking about the amazing work that they're doing about sort of, you know, teaching people to be responsible about their alcohol use when evidence shows that those are completely ineffectual campaigns. So I think a lot of the lobbying is sometimes around, look, aren't we doing really good, amazing work and you don't need to do any sort of regulation. We have it covered when I'm going to feel a little bit cynical about leaving a company to regulate itself. Yes, yeah, so it seems like they just want to paper over the cracks over the, the situation, Jennifer, in terms of what is going on. It, why should the public be alarmed by this, in, in all honesty? Because in, in listeners listening to this, this is quite a bizarre scenario where we don't even know who's lobbying on what, um, on which given day um, in our state and federal governments. That's a really good question. I mean, I guess there's a lot of reasons. One reason, I think, is that I I believe that the vast majority of lobbying and meetings and political advocacy is very much legitimate. It is, you know, it is a cornerstone of a functioning democracy to engage with, you know, representatives in government and to hear voices. Like, I think that that's completely fair. We should have that. Um, I think the risk when we don't have good transparency is that it allows organizations who have lots of resources to have lots of meetings and donate lots of money and all of the other bits um, and have sort of unfair access and influence. It allows them to hide that. And I guess in doing so, I think that really fosters a great deal of distrust sometimes. And, you know, there's organizations who look at, you know, the state of democracy in Australia and they'd say that, you know, we've got diminishing trust in government. So I think a first step if we want to improve trust is to increase transparency. And maybe it'll show that there's some dodgy stuff going on, but maybe it'll also show that, you know, there's actually a lot of legitimate stuff going on and we shouldn't lump all of the good stuff in with the bad, which is kind of what happens if it's just a mystery. 
that yeah. makes sense, so that's kind of how yeah, I feel yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from in that one, Jennifer, in terms of where you could see, you know, not not everyone who's going out to do a meeting with a minister or the the bureaucrats in Canberra to discuss the issue before they take it to the minister. Um, not all of them are doing it for the bad reasons. But uh, the, the sad reality is, Jennifer, I think from a general public perspective is, is that people think <clears throat> think otherwise and I can see why because they vote for the they vote for the, uh, the those local MPs who are for the people. And so it is a conflicting argument in that space, Jennifer, in terms of well, hang on a minute, well, how do we how do we make sure that we can uh, also be good for the people, but also uh, make sure that it's good for business business as well, no matter what whatever industry it is. Um, so it, it makes it <laughs> tricky in that space as well in terms of what goes on there. I was going to also uh, interested. What what do you make of you know someone like you know you had PwC also came KPMG and other consultants. Do you think they also put a huge um, balance, power balance over the over the influence they have on government? You know, in, in that structure, it's normally in the past. It's always been the government's made the decisions, but it seems like business is taking over those government decisions. Uh, that is such a, a murky, complicated, tricky thing. I mean, in some ways, I think there's a bit of a chicken and the egg scenario where for 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 decades we've had, you know, they sometimes call it the hollowing out of the state where we're slowly sort of replacing, you know, traditional public sector jobs and sort of privatizing bits and pieces of government in the name of efficiency and other things. And sometimes maybe it's success, but sometimes I think increasingly it's, it's where you perhaps aren't going to have, you know, the frank and fearless advice that you're supposed to be getting. And I do think, you know, obviously the PwC situation um, with the uh, sharing, shall we say, of confidential information is an especially egregious example of where it might actually look very corrupt. But I think there's just a, I I guess I think there's a general danger where, if we're outsourcing so much of stuff that should be done by the government and by sort of, I guess, that more sort of democratically elected space to organizations that may have vested interests. You know, if, I cons- if I'm if i a consultant, I'm not only consulting for the government. I would consult for other organizations. And I guess PwC clearly showed that sometimes the conflicts of interest um, are, are very stark, but it also kind of suggests that it's probably not the only example. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, in the past year, Australia's created the National Anti-Corruption Commission and have forward recommendations reforming political donations. Where do you see that going in terms of what they'll find in terms of um, what lobbying groups are doing at Canberra, uh, especially at the federal level? Well, I guess I guess in terms of the donations, I, I think we actually have... A, a, I think we've got good potential to actually see some movement on that. And certainly that's the view I've I've heard from other people who are probably much better placed in Canberra to sort of read the the writing on the ground. I think I think we'll probably see some progressive moves with the donations in terms of lowering that threshold. So right now it's something like if you donate less than fifteen thousand dollars, you don't actually have to say who you are, which is a ridiculous loophole. Um, so I think there'll be a bunch of progress there. But what you're talking about there with the political donations doesn't extend to lobbying. So lobbying is still something that's untouched. So I will say, um, obviously, on Monday this week, 
Um, Monique Ryan has put forward a, a new bill that does propose taking some quite transformative steps to improve the quality of our lobbyist registers. So something along those lines would be very, you know, that would take a, be a tremendous leap forward, I guess, in better transparency for lobbying. Um, yeah, definitely, because, you know, as the general public wants to know, they want to know uh, how policy is being shaped, no matter what the issue is, Jennifer, and I think that's important to the, uh, and is crucial to the, the voters out there. Mm, absolutely. And I think I think the general thing is, as you were talking about earlier, you know, I think of transparency as a really important first step. Um, it helps, you know, you know, the expression of sunlight is the best disinfectant. <laughs> But transparency is, of course, not a panacea. It can't fix everything. And so you have to back that up with strong regulations and sanctions and fines and penalties and other things so that it's not just a slap on the wrist or a bit of sort of public discomfort. It's something more substantial. Yeah. Do you think that also there should be a bit more power to account in terms of what happens at the state government level? Um, You know, we saw with the uh, water uh, scandal situation which occurred only a couple of years ago uh, and that found out that there was multiple water registration licences that were uh, owned to foreign uh, nat- multinational companies and that was um, uh, all all bare to see and that um, also brought the probably the end of uh, the Gladys Berejiklian government as well. That's all in, in conjunction in, in the space there. Jennifer, also just give the listeners a bit of an understanding of that, but also, you know, could you see, you know, more of this scrutiny coming across in in the future? Oh, I mean, I guess in some ways the irony is that the some of the state governments, state and territory governments, have more transparency than we do at the federal level. So, um, Queensland, and this this isn't a formal benchmarking, I guess, but sort of like back of the envelope. Queensland probably has the most transparency. They have, you know, a relatively user-friendly register. It has contact logs. You can see who's met with whom. Um, information about the meeting is not actually very forthcoming. It's usually things like introduction or commercial inconfidence, which really leaves me guessing what that could be. Um, but, you know, New South Wales and ACT both have um, ministerial diaries as well something that is completely lacking at the federal level. Um, So, I mean, I guess on the one hand, we could probably look to some of the state and territory governments and their sort of work in the integrity space as an example for what the federal government could do. But really, if I'm going to be looking for examples about how to improve that, I'd be looking internationally um, because there's there's lots of good stuff. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, um, yeah. What what are they, uh, Jennifer? Like, is uh, what countries should we be looking at in terms of how they deal with lobbying groups and making sure that they're uh, transparent to the public? I mean, the cheeky academic in me says, "Watch this space. I'm doing a research <laughs> project on exactly this question." Um, <laughs> but you probably don't want to wait around <laughs> for months while that gets published and finished and all of everything. Um, I think the short answer is, you know, no country has a, a perfect awesome amazing transparency thing. But there's bits and pieces that some countries do really well. So um, the U.S. is unique in that they require financial disclosure. So you have to say how much money you spent hiring lobbyists and engaging in lobbying, um, something that, you know, would give, would take us so far to sort of understand, you know, like the volume and the extent and the resources that are being spent on this. Um, Canada, um, Ireland, Chile, other countries have, 
much better requirements around sort of the details of what goes on in a meeting. So you can say we had a meeting with this minister and these advisors also came and we came and we talked about this particular policy and here was our position on that policy. And it really gives you a much better sense of sort of, you know, why did you have that meeting in the first place and what was the purpose and intention of having that meeting, Um, which is really just that, you know, that's the essence of what you kind of want to know. Do you think that the companies in Australia that are doing doing lobbying and the likes, if they, uh, the reason why they would not be liking it to be public is is that due to um, conflict of interest in other business ventures, or is it to do with brand loyalty and the likes? Like, for example, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, Jennifer. But if we had a situation where, uh, you know, a fast food chain or you know the alcohol the, the alcohol um, lobbyist group, for example, as you as you brought up earlier kind of said, oh, we're going to, you know, we're doing all this for the community and all that, and that come out public, and everyone said, hang on a minute, well, you're not. And do you think that would change people's attitudes to those type of organisations if, if that occurred? I mean, I guess, I guess one answer is that, well, they're required to do this in other countries, and they're still incredibly profitable and incredibly successful companies in other countries where we have much higher transparency things. So any potential counter-argument that it's a threat to profits or anything like this wouldn't really hold water, probably, if you look at, you know, how they perform in those other countries. To the point of, I guess, you know, is there a risk for some companies that more transparency might alert the public to perhaps a... duplicitous sounds like a really strong word, but, you know, misleading marketing around things? Sure. Mm. I mean, I guess that's kind of the point, but I guess the other part of me is, you know... There's obviously a legitimate right to privacy for all individuals and everything like this. But I think as an organization or someone, if I'm trying to influence policymakers and decision makers who are making decisions on behalf of the whole of the public of Australia, there's a legitimate amount of information that should be shared. Um, And if that suggests that the behavior is not in line with public expectations, then I think it's perfectly fair for the public to censure that. Um, but you put it in the public domain and let let everyone sort of make the decision. Yeah, well, we'll watch this space, Jennifer, as you said. If you want to follow along to your work, Jennifer, where can we find it for those listeners interested in this world lobbying? Oh, sorry. Um, so the, the research piece that we're talking about, that's in Health Promotion International. So you can just Google that. It's open. It's open access. It's all of that. Yeah. And then I, so my fellowship with the Victorian Health Promotion Foundation, um, and they do a lot of great work in this space, and have other organisations um, working on this. So Transparency International Australia, the Australian Democracy Network. I could give you a long litany of organisations that do really good, good stuff that I'll happily sort of promote along with our particular research piece. Well, it sounds like uh, you're doing some great stuff, Jennifer. So keep up the great work, and it's an interesting world. We'll definitely watch this space, and it was great to have you on 3CR Breakfast. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. That's Um, okay. Have a good day. And you are on 3CR 855 AM. That was my chat earlier with Jennifer Lacey Nichols, a research fellow at the University of Melbourne discussing the role lobbying has on the government. And she discussed uh, the uh, findings uh, of government lobbyist registers that are largely left in the dark. If you want to catch that up, if you missed that, you can on the 3CR podcast. So now we're going to go to a song. It's 
Champagne Supernova by Oasis. And then after that, we'll be talking all things plastics and the harms of the environment.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Patrick Morrow and myself, Claudia, here in the, the studio. I hope your Wednesday morning is starting very well. Well, it was a warm, fuzzy idea. The super giants of Australia's supermarket industry diligently collecting your pre-loved soft plastics, then sending them off for recycling. The pipe dream ended when Red Cycle, the entity responsible for the recycling, went belly up, admitting that the plastics had actually been stockpiled and not recycled for months. That was 12 months ago, and environmentally conscious consumers have been upset over the absence of a recycling option for their soft plastics ever since. But while things have been frustratingly dormant at the consumer end, environmental groups have been busy developing new proposals for dealing with plastic waste and production. Joining us today is Bieta Molière, the Packaging Product Stewardship Lead at Boomerang Alliance, a national community-based not-for-profit organisation aiming for a zero-waste society. Welcome, Bieta. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Good morning to you. Can you just give us a snapshot of what Boomerang Alliance does and how it fits into the plastic waste reduction space? Yes, yes, of course. So we are a national non-profit organisation and we've been around for almost actually 20 years. Um, we do represent a whole range of other environmental organisations across Australia. So we've got 55 allies and we're very well supported through the community. So we've got about 50,000 supporters and additional groups who um, yeah, really, really advocate um, with us and on at our side, so a large-scale organisation with a range of campaigns that we're working on. Thank you. So let's uh, talk about supermarkets since they are a place most of us are familiar with. Yeah. Uh, they sell products made of plastic, they sell products wrapped in plastic and then you often take home the products in more plastic. So going to the supermarket is basically a trip to buy plastic indirectly, (laughs) as far as I can see it. Uh, You've just released an audit report in relation to supermarkets and plastics. What were the key findings? Yes, spot on. So we last week have released our supermarket plastics audit, And what we did find is that some supermarkets are doing better than others. However, overall, all supermarkets across Australia have a lot of room to improve. Um, What we have seen and what most of our consumers know is that there are a lot of items that are unnecessarily wrapped in plastic. Um, One of the findings, and this will not surprise many, is that often um, um, items that are wrapped are actually more affordable than those that are unwrapped. And that, again, is uh, often unnecessary plastic. So there's a lot of room for improvement. And we, what we want to see is, first of all, a reduction of those plastics that we do not need. So those plastics that are completely unnecessarily um, used for a whole range of items. And secondly, what we want to see in all of our supermarkets is a shift to more reuse and refill. This is what we see in a lot of other countries now, and that's what we want to bring to Australia as well, so that we actually have those reuse and refill systems very much readily available in all of our supermarkets across Australia. So what is the best way of bringing supermarkets to account on on these plastics issues? Should we be moving to obligatory reporting mechanisms such as the modern slavery reporting obligations? And that's exactly where Australia is heading. So we've had some really clear, strong 
commitment from the federal government earlier this year to move to exactly that. So it's called extended producer responsibility where we will see that producers are going to be responsible for all the packaging that they are going to place on the market. So we see that, for example, in Europe, it's very strong around, you know, anything that you produce, you must take responsibility for. So you produce it, you need to actually then also be responsible for what happens at the end of its life. That's exactly what we will be doing in Australia. So the commitment is there. There will be now um, mandatory standards and mandatory targets rather than what we've done in the past, which has been completely voluntary. So there will be a really big shift that we will see. And will there be penalties for companies that don't comply with the expectations? That's exactly what we are advocating for. And that's what we will need to um, make sure that we keep going as, you know, our group in terms of the advocacy that we actually get the standards and the targets right and that then there's also the monitoring and the compliance because without some of that we will not see the uh, best effect. What we do know is that the majority of producers are actually looking forward to having a mandated scheme because it will create a really level playing field for everyone and then we all know what we are working with rather than currently what we have for our voluntary standards and targets. And the collapse of Red Cycle was obviously a mm. huge disappointment, but the statistics yes. show that even when Red Cycle was operating, only 5% or less than 5% of soft plastics were being recycled through that organisation and the rest was going to landfill. Yes, and that was um, surprising to many that it was such a small percentage. So what we want to see is a large-scale scheme, which also takes into account business to business. So when you go to other places and when businesses work with each other, that, that soft plastic is actually recycled as well. And it's not just the 4% that we had been recycling through Red Cycle. So it was only ever a really small amount. So this new scheme that we want is going to have to look at every single part of the supply chain and needs to be able to be really accessible. So there's been some really interesting trials done through curbside collection. So to be able for uh, for households to recycle through curbside and in addition, what we want to see is that businesses are also held to account that everyone recycles across the board and not just households. And recycling itself is not a, a simple fix, is it? It's quite a complex process because all the plastics are, are different. Can you take us through some of the challenges there? Yeah, so there's a whole lot of different materials, plastic uh, materials, and some are much easier to recycle than others. Some are much higher value than others in terms of the recycling economy and what you can ultimately do with the product. What we do also um, keep talking about is composite materials. So when you have a number of different things merged together, they become so much harder to actually recycle and to keep using so it's in terms of what we want to see in our product stewardship scheme in Australia is uh, materials that can easily be recycled and easily processed within Australia. So there's a lot that can be done just in that initial design phase. And we always say waste is really a design problem. So there's a lot more to it, but we need to start with design. So that's um, in terms of material choice. 
and making sure that the materials that we use are A, recyclable in theory, but that they're also in practical terms recycled because what we're finding at the moment is that a lot of things say it's recyclable, but they don't actually get recycled in the end. So that's where we need to see that shift. Mm. And before we move off the topic of supermarkets, um, Mm. what sort of things can consumers do to make a stand against plastics in supermarkets? Yeah, there's some really practical steps that we can take. So starting with our uh, plastic bags, always bringing your own bags. And there's still a lot of uh, consumers who do not do that. So really shifting that as a first action. Um, Choosing some of our more affordable delis as well. So a lot of delis and uh, smaller supermarkets, they have the ability to, or everyone has the ability, but they actually do happily accept people bringing their own containers. So most butchers in in, um, Australia and most definitely in Victoria can accept your own containers and are allowed to do so, which is um, during COVID that was not the case, but now that's 100% the case. So bring your own containers, challenge your supermarkets as well. So that's a really big change because all those little um, produce bags, they all go to landfill. And that's also then when you go to your fruit and veg section in your supermarkets to not use those single-use uh, produce bags, shift to those small ones that are reusable, they're really affordable and you can use them for a really long time. So just moving away from anything that's unnecessarily wrapped um, and choosing some of those products that are reusable. And I guess also just being mindful of the plastic aspect of the purchases. I know uh, a particular family member in in my household (laughs) has reported that uh, on his most recent trip to a very large supermarket, uh, he was forced to use the self-checkout and he said that if you have uh, chosen the non-packaged fresh food items, then you have to then go through that search and locate uh, before you can scan the item. So, you know, there might be an, a number of different types of bananas or uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever. And he said there's actually a huge convenience in choosing the package product because the barcode is just there and you can scan it quickly. So, um, yeah, that was <laughs> an interesting observation that was responded to uh, with quite a, a sharp response, I yeah, might, might add. But um, I think just keeping this mindfulness in people's uh, front of mind is is really helpful so they can weigh up that little bit of extra effort that they might need to make yes. scanning We're an item, but with that bigger value. Yes. Yeah, and um, thinking about, you know, what, what happens at the end of this, uh, you know, it's, it's a single-use item, so what happens at the end? Can I actually recycle it or will this be just yet another landfill item? Exactly. Now, the other really interesting aspect of your work is the plastic-free program that you've been running in a number of communities around Australia. Can you tell us mm. about this program and, and how it works? Yeah, so... Our engagement program is called Plastic Free Places, where we, across Australia, are now working in all states. We are um, working directly with hospitality venues to, in, the, uh, in previous years to basically get them band ready and to show them what reuse in hospitality looks like. Going forward, our focus is very heavily on reusables in hospitality, so working with venues, with events, with stadiums, 
with corporate offices and with accommodation providers to show that we can shift from single-use takeaway to reusable takeaways and shift that landscape around, you know, how much we are actually sending again to landfill that is completely unnecessary. So I'm predominantly talking about straws and cutlery, coffee cups, takeaway containers and plastic bags in that landscape. So we work, uh, yes? Go on. We work across all states and we have eliminated um, over 50 million single-use items over the past um, few years and we will keep going now with this focus on reusables and we'll see that uh, increase drastically, that number. Fantastic, because there was a statistic in your uh, report that was talking about the the overall plastic footprint being the equivalent of 53 million cars or something, you know, extraordinary. So, uh, yeah, it's a really uh, important and very large um, area and, and, and contributor to our, our waste landscape. Um, and, yes, not only our waste landscape, I think what we keep forgetting is the plastic footprint um, also um, in terms of the carbon footprint because it's actually very significant what plastic contributes to our carbon footprint and that's one of those um, areas where we think change can happen really quickly by us all making some very simple um, swaps and making sure that we consider pl- the plastic footprint when we talk about our carbon footprint. And down in uh, the Mornington Peninsula, you have one of these mm-hmm. plastic-free communities that you're assisting. Um, we have, yes. And you'll be running a few events coming up. Can you yes, tell our listeners do. about those? Yes. So we're re- very aware now that across Australia, we are using about 50,000 single-use plastic cups every 30 minutes. They pretty much all go to landfill or are less littered. So the focus of these events that we are running on the peninsula and also in um, most other states now we've had these events happening and they will be rolled out more over the coming years. It's a reusable cup day where we encourage the community to make that change. It's one change, change to a reusable cup and you can make a really big difference. So we will have a couple of events coming up on the 8th and 9th of December with Common Folk Coffee in Mornington and with Home Ground also in Mornington. They're a social enterprise. And so every single uh, packaging item that will not be needed, the money saved, which is about 30 to 50 cents per single-use cup, can then go back into a social enterprise or a charity. And that's what we are um, working on with these venues. And what we will encourage the community to do is either bring your own cup or make uh, use of one of those reusable cup systems. They are um, happening everywhere in Australia now and there will be more and more of that, that you can actually just go to a cafe and borrow a cup. So we're inviting everyone to come along on those two days. That's 8th and 9th of December, Common Folk Coffee and Home Ground. Fantastic. We'll put those uh, details on our show notes on our website and uh, let's encourage uh, listeners to uh, bring their reusable cups to to those events, but uh, every day also. We're coming to the end of our time, but I just wanted to ask you one more question. The 
President of the United Nations Environment Program, William Ruto, uh, has said in Kenya this week, where they are meeting, that to deal with plastic pollution, humanity must change. What do you see as the biggest challenge in changing humanity to achieve this? I think the biggest challenge is for everyone to take responsibility and for us all to be able to change some behaviours that are very ingrained and to take that really seriously. So I think often we think it's just uh, it's just another thing. But if you look at a global landscape, how much plastic is actually produced and we are set to increase that over the next years globally. If we take that seriously and we actually go, let's holistically look at how we can reduce it and not pollute our oceans, which is really the biggie. We look at how many tons and tons of plastic are going into our oceans every day. Um, that's really where the change will happen. And there's a whole supply chain that needs to take responsibility, but the consumer in the end will also need to really consciously start changing behaviours. And I think in Australia we are definitely achieving a level of consciousness now around what's happening and in many other um, countries as well where it's really obvious that our beaches are being littered, that there's so much plastic in our ocean. So the awareness is definitely increasing and then we need to turn that into action. Mm. Yeah, we do. And um, it's still shocking to, to learn, though, that Australians consume more single-use plastic per capita uh, yep. than any other country in the world after Singapore. So, Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, to be globally leading in single-use plastic use per capita, that's not good enough and we can all do much better and we have to. Thank yeah, you. And that. I always say start with one change. You know, look at, don't look at this complex situation Look around yourself at home, in your office. What is the one change you can start with today? That sounds like a good advice. Thank you very much, Beata Molière, Packaging Product Stewardship Lead at Boomerang Alliance, the national peak not-for-profit organisation aiming for a zero-waste society. And we'll put uh, details of how you can uh, find out more about Boomerang's activities and sign up to their petition to cut plastic packaging, um, as well as those Mornington Peninsula events on our website. Just wanted to uh, correct something I said earlier. It, Australia's plastics consumption admit, emits the same amount of greenhouse gas as 5.7 million cars on the road every year, not 57 million cars. I thought that was a bit large as I was saying it. Hi everyone, you're invited to the 2023 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 16th of November at Arnie Almathorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munwaro, High Street, Preston. Join MC Shirley Hood for an evening of talks and music, including Kutch Edwards, Amos Roach, Chris Austin and myself, Robbie Thorpe and the band. Thursday the 16th of November, Arnie Almathorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munwaro, from 6pm to 8.30pm. All welcome. See you there. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. 
Next up, we'll be bringing a special extended interview with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the human rights situation in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. The UN's Palestine expert, Francesca Albanese, is visiting Australia this week amid continued trauma and bloodshed in Gaza and Israel and rising tensions between some Jewish and pro-Palestinian communities in Nam about personal safety, protest rights and the national government's stance on a ceasefire. Listeners who are following the crisis may be familiar with Miss Albanese. Uh, she was on Q&A on Monday night and she also made a national press address yesterday in Canberra. For those who aren't, uh, a brief introduction. Miss Albanese is a highly respected human rights lawyer, researcher and author who has worked for over 20 years as a human rights expert for the United Nations. She has advised the UN, governments and civil society across the Middle East, North Africa and the Asia-Pacific on the enforcement of human rights norms, especially for vulnerable groups including refugees and migrants. In 2022, Ms Albanese was appointed as United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories. She is the author of Palestinian Refugees in International Law and holds a number of advisory and research positions at think tanks and academic institutions. She is visiting Australia as a guest of the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, where she delivered the annual Edward Sayed Memorial Lecture on Saturday. I was fortunate to speak with her about her role in the current political and humanitarian crisis. And a warning to listeners, this segment discusses the subject of war, loss of life and suffering, which might be distressing. Let's take a listen. Before we speak about the current situation in Gaza and Israel, can you please clarify for our listeners, what is the role of an United Nations Special Rapporteur? Sure, uh, thank you, Claudia. Uh, a Special Rapporteur of the United Nations uh, is an independent expert appointed by the Human Rights Council of the UN uh, to uh, report to the United Nations on specific violations occurring um, in connection with a given topic, for example, human rights defenders, uh, right to food, access to health, or international violations occurring in a given country. Uh, this is my case. I have a country mandate, um, um, and uh, so I'm due to report to the United Nations on the international law violations occurring in the occupied Palestinian territory namely the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, that Israel has occupied uh, since 1967. And in this role, it's an independent role. How difficult is it to act impartially in this role? It is an independent role, and in fact, we do serve in a honor, in a honorary capacity. So we are considered. I mean, we are um, UN uh, experts. So we are bound by uh, UN rules, but we have the independence of not not being uh, UN employees, for example. Um, it's, this mandate is particularly challenging because, um, and this is not something related to the current events, it's always like this. There are a lot of emotions, conflicting narratives, um, and, uh, and also, um, I mean, I've, I've experienced it a lot. There is uh, also a lot of misinformation that then translates into personal attacks against anyone who dares 
um, criticizing the the position of of Israel. It's very easy to be uh, accused of anti-Semitism because there is a conflation of criticism to the state of Israel and anti-Semitism, which I find very dangerous. But again, these are the these are the main challenges, uh, together with two very important ones: that the situation on the ground is very violent. I've, I've really struggled portraying the full picture of what was happening in the occupied Palestinian territory. What I've seen happening over 16 months of my uh, of my mandate, me, me being on the mandate, and uh, and also it's very difficult because Israel um, prevents me, as it has done with my predecessors, professors Richard Falk and Michael Link, uh, from entering the occupied Palestinian territory in violations with its obligations as a UN member state. So it's also very difficult to access uh, the information firsthand, but. Again, this is circumvented by the fact that there are so many uh, excellent monitors on the ground, Palestinian and Israeli human rights organizations and international human rights organizations. Plus, I've, I've lived in the occupied Palestinian territory, so it's, um, the, the reality on the ground is, uh, is something I'm very familiar with. But, of course, I would like to be in a greater proximity with the victims, both, I mean, First and foremost, the Palestinians who are the victimized one under Israeli occupation, but also uh, many Israelis who stand in solidarity with them and against apartheid and against occupation, and I'm very close to. So, I, I mean, it would be different to have the opportunity to go to the, uh, to the field and work uh, with them. So let's just pause there because that's a really significant uh, statement that you have made. Your role is to report on the situation in these occupied territories, but mm -hmm. you yourself are not allowed to enter those territories. Mm -hmm. Correct. That's, that's what you're saying. Yes. yes. What, what so happens example, if you would try to enter the, the across the boundary? See. We will see because it's going to happen in the sense that I find very frustrating uh, that uh, Israel doesn't respond to requests for, because I informed them several times that I wanted to go, that I intended to go. Last year, I had worked for months with Palestinian and Israeli organizations to, to organize, to have a field visit uh, in, the, in Jerusalem and the, the West Bank. And I knew that it would have been very difficult to enter Gaza, and also the Egyptian authorities have not been very responsive. So um, I prepared everything, and then uh, Israel... The Israeli authorities said that no, I had to delay, that they would give me uh, authorization to enter, and it never happened. So I had to turn all those all those meetings into virtual tours that both Israeli and Palestinian organizations gave me. They took me through places with a mobile phone. I held town hall meetings with, uh, with tons of people, but... Um, uh, via via Zoom. And same thing, think for example that this summer I've been writing a report on uh, the situation of children under occupation because half of the population under occupation is uh, under 18 year old and I've been having Zoom meetings every other day uh, with groups of kids. Now, you know, it's been very, very difficult but also very fulfilling because these young creators are fantastic. Now it's painful for me to say that most of those I've interviewed are no longer with us. I am so sorry. Yeah, painful. Where were you when you learned of the Hamas attack on October 7th? And what was your reaction? Yeah, 
it's uh, this shows also how difficult this is because I'm I'm not only a lawyer I'm not only a special rapporteur who uh, who's often to take time off her job uh, in order to serve this mandate I'm also a mother of two young kids and I travel a lot and I had just returned home from uh, weeks of being busy writing the report and traveling I had just returned from Europe and I live in Tunisia and this was the only weekend I had taken to go somewhere with my family, with my kids. And then on a Sunday morning, um, someone called me and said, are you seeing what's happening in uh, in Israel? And I turn on the news and I see, yeah, my reaction was I was, I was shocked. I knew in that very moment that nothing good would have come out because even without even knowing how many uh, victims a Hamas uh, attack on Israel had provoked, had done, I knew that the reaction would be fierce. So this has been my feeling. And then for me, Claudia has been, it has been, like for many, huh? like a, a, a one long day that started on the 7th of October and there has been very little respite. And of course, the sense of powerlessness and the sense of uh, of really the, the, the huge pain uh, that goes with uh, with it is uh, is unspeakable i've never I've, in my 20 years of uh, of professional engagement i've never felt uh, this level of distress because what's going on under our watch is absolutely unprecedented and unless a ceasefire is declared, but now, now immediately, it's already late. Ten thousand, over, I mean, eleven thousand people have been killed. Seventy uh, percent of them are women and children. Almost five thousand of them are children. I mean, we should really see the humanity, the distressed humanity, the devastated humanity behind this, these figures, and the fact that even, especially in the West, there is no, not only there is no empathy no sympathy, no no connection, no much connection. I mean, I wouldn't say between the people and what's going on to the pal- with the Palestinians, but really the political leadership. There is a dehumanization of the Palestinian that uh, travels across the, the globe, and particularly in the West, and I find it very, 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 very disappointing and discouraging. Yes. Now, Israel claims its counterattack on Gaza is an act of self-defence, and this view is supported by a number of Israel's allies, including Australia. Yes. You don't agree with this view. What no. is your view? No, no, I don't agree because it's really wrong. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm very happy to also see that there has been, uh, there, there were reactions uh, among the, I understand, I've not seen it myself, but if, if this is the case, um, I mean... So um, no, no. The the uh, the claim that uh, Israel has a legitimate or an inherent right to self-defense is uh, absolutely wrong. Because, and I know that it's counterintuitive. So, to the benefit of the people who are listening to us, let me explain, Claudia. Um, of in in common parlance, the right to self-defense is. Uh, uh, of course, it's, it's, it's normal. Of course, the right, it, it's almost a synonymous with uh, right to protect itself, which, of course, Israel has. Israel has the sacrosanct right to protect itself, its territory, its citizens, and uh, these go, this cannot be challenged. At the same time, under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, 
self-defense means something very specific. It's a legal term of art and means the right to wage a war, which is only justified in response to an attack or an imminent threat of an attack coming from another state and uh, so not an armed group but of course on this one the doctrine is very divided and also the state practice because is, um, the United States for example have pushed for another interpretation when they attacked Iraq when they attacked Afghanistan at the same time the supreme organ of the um, the supreme judicial organ of the United Nations has, is very clear about that the, the threat must emanate from the state but this is not even the relevant point here. It's a, the ICJ says that the right to self-defense cannot be claimed against uh, the people Israel occupies. An occupying power has a duty to protect and has law and order responsibilities um, under the, um, the Hague Convention and Regulations in the territory it occupies. This is the legal framework that should have been applied. So yes, Israel had the right to uh, to propel, uh, to, sorry, to repel the attack, uh, had the right to uh, neutralize the danger, to arrest and detain and the, the, the people who had uh, um, attacked it, and at the say and, and pursue justice, of course, for its victims because war crimes were committed. Now, even resistance has limits. Uh, so the Palestinian people have the right to resist an oppressive regime, but they cannot target civilians. Um, the civilians cannot be killed, intentionally killed. The civilian cannot be taken hostage. So this is crystal, crystal clear, and I don't aim to downplay or minimize or condone anything that Hamas militants have done. At the same time, the response that Israel gave is absolutely unlawful. And, and again, as a right to wage a war. And then think, Claudia, of the opaqueness of the, of the intent in this war, because it has not pursued a legitimate military target or a military target, which could have been destroying Hamas military capacity so that it doesn't harm us anymore or pursuing justice and ensuring that these people are uh, investigated, prosecuted, etc. No, it has, it has been destroying Hamas as... Hamas is a political movement. Hamas is a political reality which has, uh, for good or not, uh, it has reigned over Gaza for 16 years and also thanks to Israel's uh, uh, policies. And, uh, and therefore, it has turned, I knew from the very beginning what would have happened, and in fact, I've raised the alarm, it has turned uh, into a, a wholesale war against, uh, against the civilian population of, uh, of the Gaza Strip. So there has been the destruction of almost 50% of the civilian infrastructure because Israel has carpet bombed the Gaza Strip for 34 days now, uh, destroying residential buildings, hospitals, schools, uh, mosques, churches and every bit of civilian infrastructure all the more all the more tightening an already unlawful blockade because there, there has been a blockade in gaza for 16 years during which there have been five wars which had made, already made um i think um four thousand for over four thousand uh civilians uh, killed including over one thousand children so you see the level of destruction that already existed prior and trauma prior to the 7th of October. And now, I mean, with all this devastating death toll
all. How come, how come the international community struggles, particularly those in the West, with some exceptions, because I think, for example, that, that the huge protest in France managed, succeeded in pushing the, um, the president, uh, Macron, to, to call for a ceasefire, eventually. And uh, this, is, this is the thing. I mean, how, how the, the level of destruction in, in Gaza is such that we can't even imagine what the day after it will be. But, uh, yeah, as I said, there is a total dehumanization of the Palestinians because if the political leaders, including in Australia, after 11,000 people dead and the total destruction of the Gaza Strip, um, while, the, the, as I was saying, the blockade has even been tightened all, during all this bombing, Claudia, no food, no electricity, no medicines, and no essential supplies were allowed in. This might lead to intentional starvation. So we still don't know how many people died because of drinking contaminated water, because of uh, really starvation, because there is no food, because of not being able to be cured. There have been doctors operating in open air without uh, without electricity without anesthesia this is so brutal so brutal if you've just tuned in you're listening to 3CR breakfast and we've been hearing from Francesca Albanese the United Nations special rapporteur on the human rights situation in the Palestinian territories Ms Albanese condemns the illegal acts of Hamas on October 7th, but also asserts Israel's brutal response to the attack is disproportionate and illegal under international law. She is explicit in her call for Western powers to back a ceasefire and act with greater strength in the face of this humanitarian disaster. We'll be returning to this conversation in just a moment, so please stay tuned. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. And you're back listening to... 3CR Breakfast, and we've been talking with Francesca Albanese, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Situation in the Palestinian Territory. Let's return to that conversation now. It seems uh, very difficult for the political leaders around the world to separate the politics from the humanitarian aspects of the, the conflict. Yes, it is. It is, but we should wonder why. And I'm so glad to be in a country where there is such a vibrant civil society which, uh, and also intellectual community which should question these choices. Because this is not just uh, a failure of epic proportions from a humanitarian point of view. This is not just a humanitarian catastrophe. It's also a political catastrophe because it's really, it's really showing the double standards. Of course, of course, there was a need to stand in solidarity with Israel and Israeli people after the attack, but forgetting that there was an, a context that has led to this. It has led to this because, the, the fa- look, there have been provocations and attacks and brutalization and violence against the Palestinians over 56 years of occupation, particularly during the past three decades. Israel has built over 56 years 
300 colonies in occupied Palestinian territory, which have, this is the, this is structural violence because it leads to land confiscation and forced displacement of the, of the Palestinians. And this has happened under you, you, uh, I mean, under all, under our watch. There is even, I mean, there are uh, dozens of resolutions of the UN Security Council, hundreds of resolutions of the General Assembly, which have not been respected. And you see, these, uh, these creating a double standards, this speaking international law as a manual carte, this is really disingenuous and wrong because it creates crack in the, in the system. And why so? In order not to... I see the sensitivities. I see that every word said against Israel is pondered and measured and sanitized. But why? How do we understand also the resentment that this endangers uh, among communities that feel not represented by this kind of, of polit- policies, but also the people in the global south? Because eventually it boils down to these. It's always the West versus the rest. And this, would, this could have been, as I said at the very beginning, an opportunity for the international community to act even-handedly toward the Palestinians and Israelis, and with wisdom, accompanying both of them toward a different path of mutual recognition, or rather, recognition of mutual humanity, rights to live in dignity, freedom, and, and respecting each other. Instead, no. I think that especially Western countries have been... Uh, have made it worse, and as you, I mean, I'm even shocked to see the rise of anti-Palestinian racism and the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of Islamophobia outside Israel, Palestine, and this is this this reflects to how Western societies deal with this issue, which is perceived as intrinsically biased. Thank you. Coming back to the United Nations itself um, as the world's peacekeeping body, it seems it is harder and harder to achieve peace in the world, which is becoming increasingly polarised, increasingly right-leaning. To what extent do you feel that the limitations of the United Nations to effectively achieve and maintain peace are a result of its own structure and mandate? Or do you feel that the individual members, as we've talked about, are putting their own political wants ahead of the humanitarian values and that this is what is obstructing the UN and its work? I do, I do think that there are structural obstacles, as you say, because the fact that the United Nations Security Council is paralysed by the veto veto power uh, member states, and particularly in this case by the U.S. veto. Uh, is, uh, the U- United States have vetoed half of the 70 or over 70 resolutions that have been uh, tabled in the last uh, uh, five, 50 years on uh, Israel, the occupied Palestinian territory. And it continues to do so, but this time, this time the pro-Israel stance is so abysmally worse than anything that has been done before. So it tampers, it hijacks the United Nations politically because then the Security Council is paralyzed, but also other other bodies because you you might have seen how difficult it was to even endure a pass um, a general assembly emergency resolution declaring not even the ceasefire but a truce a mere truce 
so yes, the United Nations uh, is, is uh, uh, from a political point of view, is completely paralyzed and uh, and ineffective. As I said, I found also that the limitations hampered a proper legal analysis because there have been now it's more clear there are people denouncing the lack of uh, self-defense. But in the beginning, it was at the international level, my mandate and the Commission of Inquiry on Israel and Palestine, who, who denounces, say, no, there is no such a thing. And then, of course, there have been some humanitarian actors like the Norwegian Refugee Council and others. But otherwise, there has been a blind rallying around uh, Israel in, um, in um, joining in news on the, uh, the chorus of, yes, this is right to self-defense, and calling for a ceasefire would limit it. No, this is condoning the, the, the use of brute force, and it's a, it's a legitimization of aggression. And then also think from a humanitarian point of view, Claudia, um, it took weeks to, uh, to authorize the entry of a few hundred trucks uh, that have met, as far as I see from the UN reports, 4%, 4% of the needs of a totally distressed population. And uh, so a few hundred, like 700 trucks have entered the Gaza Strip, only the south, because as you know, as you probably know, Israel has ordered the evacuation of half of the Gaza Strip. Yes. Um, and while while also bombing the south, and the population inside is trapped. So, from a humanitarian point of view, nothing, nothing of what was needed has been done. This has been the most lethal conflict in the United Nations history because 90 UN staff members have been killed together with 200 medical professionals and uh, uh, over 45 journalists. So it's it's extremely, extremely serious, and uh, and people, as I said, struggle asking for a ceasefire, struggle asking for humanitarian corridors that do not uh, become a vehicle for a forcible transfer, because it's clear that, and, and you can get it from Netanyahu's declarations, from the plans that have been circulated, the idea is to push as many Palestinians from Gaza out of Gaza. This is why I denounced, look, this is another instance of ethnic cleansing, mass ethnic cleansing under the fog of war, as it has happened in 1947-49, when 750,000 Palestinians were expelled, were made refugees, never allowed to return from modern-day Israel. 80% of the Palestinian refugees worldwide come from <laughs> inside Israel. And then in 1967, when Israel uh, occupied the West Bank, Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip, making other uh, 350,000 refugees. This, this is the third instance. But of course, ethnic cleansing has been an ongoing, unfolding reality for the Palestinians that has happened when there was no war through bureaucracy, through withdrawal of residency permits, uh, through uh, home demolitions or declaration of closed military areas. So you see, the fact is that there has been a protracted impunity uh, which has been addressed just by uh, statements here of condemnations here and there. And then we go to the second part of your question, Claudia. Uh, the fact that you said, what, I mean, members, there is also a responsibility of member states. Yes, of course, because the fact that the United Nations Security Council is paralyzed doesn't mean that member states individually or as a spontaneous coalition, as regional organizations, have nothing to do. Because, you know, there, and now, 
now it's coming up because, for example, there are member states who have uh, um, interrupted diplomatic relations with uh, with uh, with Israel, recalled the ambassadors, um, and. Um, and, and they threaten economic sanctions. This is what should be done. When there is a, a level of wrongdoing that amounts to international crimes, here we are also talking of the crime of star intentional starvation, intentional extermination, because bombing a refugee camp where 400 civilians are living, uh, knowing that there is one militant that is to be killed, transforms the entire civilian population into a target. And this might amount my amount to the war crime or intentional extermination. So, and there are many who have denounced the, gen, the, the, the unfolding, the possibility that there is a genocide unfolding. And frankly, if you look at the genocidal statements that have been made, made in really, in, in the, 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 now we, we stopped counting them because it's, it's relentless. From political uh, leaders who call the Palestinians animals, all terrorists, there are no civilians, and to, so justifying their erasure, erasure of Gaza. And military leaders are saying, we are not after um, accuracy, we are after destruction. We need to destroy the entire Hamas system. It means that you, you, you uh, target an entire civilian population. And what's happening is that. So there is mass killing, mass harm, physical and mental harm done and creating conditions of life that are, um, that are, uh, that might translate into the destruction of the, of the people living there in total in part. So, you know, and plus there is a genocidal call across Israel. You know that even in, in the West Bank, away from the conflict in Gaza, there have been almost 200 people, 200 Palestinians killed. Many of them are children. They've been killed by soldiers and armed settlers. While the, 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 the army is also bombing Palestinian villages like the Jenin refugee camp. And while the people of Israel is, and the settlers, of course not of them, not all of them, because there are many Israelis who are standing against this, and it's so beautiful to see Israelis and Palestinians getting together, united, to stop this madness. And this is, this is a sign of humanity that gives me hope, and it's happening inside Israel, and it's happening around the world, that the Jewish communities and Palestinian communities in the diaspora, like in the United States, are calling for the end of it. So uh, this is my only hope right now. But you see, there is, in the face of all these, with the, many people, People in Israel calling for a second Nakba or a third Nakba of the Palestinians, I find absolutely shocking, shocking that political leaders, including in this country, including, sorry, including in this country, do not intervene to stop all these and sanctioning Israel, stopping uh, to sell arms to the uh, to Israel because they might be found complicit with the commission of atrocity crimes sooner or later. Justice will knock at our door. So it's, it's very important to keep this in mind. And you have a number of meetings coming up uh, in this coming week with yes. leaders in Australia. What yes. messages will you be trying to convey and will you be specifically addressing uh, Australia's 
economic uh, involvement through the the trade of arms and war weapons. Yeah, as I said, as I I said, it was problematic even before uh, the 7th of October. I think that there is a level of responsibility that every, particularly Western countries, but not only, I mean, I'm very blunt also with, with Arab countries that have supported the state of affairs over over the years. But again, I, I will go back to, um, to the, uh, Australia's commitment to a two-state solution, asking what they mean, because it's clearly uh, what has happened on the ground, what has unfolded is, is the opposite of, uh, of a path toward a two-state solution. So if Australia is uh, really committed to the primacy of international law and international uh, legality as a key element to, to, to mark the perimeter of what is admissible uh, in, uh, in, in politics, then, uh, then it's fundamental to show consistency and, and draw the line to what uh, Australia is, uh, is eager to accept in terms of Israel's behavior. I think it's a paradigm shift is needed. And this is a, um, a moment of, uh, of, it's a test for all of us and our capacity to, to honor the commitments that have made the United Nations the system that it used to be a guarantor of peace and security, and which is no longer, no longer such. So Israel, I mean, I will call on, uh, on Australia to a moment of reckoning. What kind of role do you want to play vis-a-vis these two people there could be one if there was not this, uh, you know, this uh, even-handed approach that has harmed both the Palestinians and the Israelis ultimately. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and we've been hearing an extended interview with the UN Special Rapporteur for the Situation in the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese. Ms Albanese decries Israel's blockage of aid and food and other essentials to Gaza, questioning how many lives have been lost to starvation and the risk of extermination of the Palestinian people. It happens to be Remembrance Day when we speak, and as the clock approaches 11am, I think it is both ironic and so sad that we're speaking when this war and others are still happening in the world. I asked Miss Albanese one final question about what thoughts and feelings this day brings for her. Well, uh, it tells me, you know, I didn't know. First of all, thank you for that. But uh, this Remembrance Day is, uh, again, puts us um, in um, sort of forces us to, uh, to confront the reality. If we really want to honor the memory of those who have fallen, fighting wars, we need to make sure that we create conditions for wars not to happen anymore. This is the best way to avoid further loss of life, senseless loss of life, in my view, because wars should not even be part of the 20th, uh, 21st century's reality. Um, but it's a, it's a choice that requires vision, commitment to core uh, values and, and, and principles and leadership really moral courage to, uh, to stick to these values and failing which, wars will continue to happen. Thank you very much and thank you for the work that you're doing and generating this spirit of moral courage amongst everyone that you speak to. Thank you, Claudia. That's so nice of you. Thank you so much.
And that was Francesca Albanese's special repertoire for human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories, speaking about the political and humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza and Israel and urging Western leaders, including our own Prime Minister, to show strength and moral courage in their response. And just a few notes about Ms Albanese's appearances in Melbourne. Um, She is appearing in Nam tomorrow night uh, in an event moderated by Rowan Arif from the Australian Centre for International Justice. Tickets are sold out, but you can join the wait list and we will put details of that on our show notes. And then on Saturday, there is a black solidarity gathering with Miss Albanese together with Professor Gary Foley and Noura Mansour from the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. So that's Saturday, November the 18th at 1pm. And that'll be taking place at Auntie Alma Thorpe's Gathering Place at 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. And of course, you can tune into Palestine Remembered on 3CR every Saturday at 9.30am. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. So that brings us to the end of our program this morning. We'd like to thank our guests and thank our listeners for staying with us this morning. And I hope you enjoyed listening to that special feature that we brought you from Francesca Albanese at such a pertinent time in yeah, our it was, history. Yeah, it was an incredible interview, Claudia. When you told me you've, you landed that interview, I was wrapped for you. And also it's it's really great that 3CR has the opportunity to interview these type of people and discuss these type of issues which which get ignored but also don't get reported on properly. Um, And that's something that 3CR does amazingly well. Listen, there's got some sad news. Uh, I will be leaving uh, 3CR breakfast uh, and I'll be going on to greener, I'd say greener pastures, I won't. I will say um, to a radio role in Sydney. Uh, For those who want to keep in touch with my work, uh, you can via Twitter or X, as it's called now, Claudia, uh, go to at Mr. Patrick Morrow to uh, follow along all my work there. Uh, you can also keep... Uh, I won't be off the airwaves for much longer, Claudia. I've got tomorrow as well, so uh, 3CR Talk Back with Attitude from 10 to 11. Uh, I'll be doing the phones there, so make sure to tune in for that one. But uh, on behalf of everyone on 3CR, I'd like to say thanks very much and all the guests that I've spoken to over the six months here, I'd like to say thank you as well. So that's all for this Wednesday. I hope you have a great day. And uh, make sure to listen back to the show as well on the podcast, 3cr.org.au. Find Wednesday Breakfast and listen to all our great shows. But from me, goodbye and enjoy your day. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.